Costco sells at a premium to the profits that they're making is because people know that even in a recession, people are going to go buy in Costco because they want to save money. Whereas you can't say that to a business like Etsy. When, when people are losing jobs, they're not going to go buy handcrafted items that are being shipped to their homes. Um, Costco would probably see 5% loss in revenues if we get a um, scenario of 2008 again. Etsy would probably see 50% loss in revenues, right? It's not to say that Etsy is a bad business, but Costco is a better business. I think the same applies to the cloud industry. Durable Investments, thank you for joining us. I think, you know, we've been wanting to do this episode for a little while, uh, have somebody that's, you know, so-on-so expert on AWS, and I think you're the best person. So if we had to begin with, if you could just quickly describe what AWS is and what makes it such a compelling business. Right. I get asked these questions all the time by people who are not in the tech sector. I think a couple of weeks ago, one of my neighbor's mother asked me, what is the difference between Amazon and Amazon Web Services? I thought everything is the same. Right. But the simple explanation is, I think it goes back to the history. Amazon started as a retailer and as they started selling books and they expanded their inventory to CDs, music, other items, and the number of customers increased, uh, the amount of data they housed within their business exponentially increased, right? The customers increased and the products increased. A lot of traffic means a lot of compute and they they, they had to invent a lot of technologies to scale to Amazon, as uh, people with Amazon call it Amazon scale. And once they um, achieved the scale, someone uh, came to Bezos and be like, hey, why we have achieved the scale, we can either keep it as a secret sauce or we can actually make this technology available for others, for other people to utilize it. And then we can make a business out of it. And Bezos was like, that's a beautiful idea. And I think in 2009, they formed AWS, 2008, where basically they launched EC2, which is the compute service that AWS provides. And basically at that point, it was basically a commodity type of business, right? Any, any moment pop shop to any major retailer can host their website on AWS servers and they don't have to worry about building their own data sensors. That, that's how AWS started. And right now it is not that anymore. Right now AWS is much more. It's not just a commodity company. You maintain your computer servers kind of a deal. It is uh, it is a soft, it is an enterprise behemoth uh, that has the distribution muscles to all over internet. That's how I would describe AWS. I just wanted to ask a question about that. So I built a, I built a few things using AWS and it was incredible to me how quickly it was, how easy it was for me to come up with this idea, write it in Node, JavaScript, and then launch it. I can't even fathom of what the world looked like before that. Do you have any insight into this? Right, absolutely. Like I think back in 2010s or so when I started building my own application. That's exactly my experience, right? So you write code that builds, that hosts a web server, 
and then you write business logic on top of it and then you actually have to spin every single component of the whole stack right you have to spin up you have to go find a separate entity that hosts your dns you have to go find a separate entity that hosts your ui assets the cdn cache everyone everything you have to know being a full stack developer was such a pain before aws like even if you, even right now if you're a full stack developer and you're not using any of these integrated solution it's not easy at all there's so many things that you have to have in your mind i think one of the core mantras of amazon is making iterate iterate away the smallest of inconveniences that the customer has that's kind of amazon's core mantra right and i think aws started chipping in and automating the smallest things that the developers do and then with 12 years of engineering it has come to a point where if you want to create a software solution not just a website like a software solution you can pretty much do it with uh, a two pizza team right so i think the two pizza rule that bezos had kind of aligns with aws that's why the two pizza team actually works if you think about it, not many people talk about this anyone can say that oh we are we uh, go with lean mechanisms and we have two pizza rule no, no team can be more than um 12 no uh, you know six people right but it is not that easy if you don't have all of your base infrastructure abstracted away by you know your own devops being aws it's not easy like i've worked in companies where teams like about 25 to 30 people work on a single segment of the whole software stack and then this is one so I'm, i'm talking about one product which is being worked on by about 10 sub teams and each team is 20 people and each team takes care of the individual component and you can't those types those type of organizations uh, are slowly moving out to aws and azure and it enables them to just go with the single unit of the of just 12 people or 10 people and they can build the whole solution and because you have this devops by you who can you know you can ask away anything and he is there to give you uh, the solutions uh, as generic as possible so it has abstracted away a lot of complexities That's how I view AWS. As one of my friends uh, told me, AWS is my personal DevOps, right? That's how most people view it. So I think, yeah, that's that's when I first learned about that. I think that's what sort of struck me. You have the explicit cost of having to just hire a lot of people to work on the, you know, each component, or you can go to AWS. That's like the explicit cost. Obviously, the implicit cost is all the things that were not being built before, just because people cannot afford to build them. And so I think that is maybe the the greatest thing that AWS has. sort of given to the world. You know, if you if you have to discuss and I think I think I'm glad you brought it up that it was sort of brought around in 2008. As you look at the AWS competitors and I'm sure there were a lot of differentiate differentiating factors that AWS had back then, but what are the core differentiating factors that AWS has now when compared to Google or Microsoft, etc.? I the core differentiating factor is their product suit, if you ask me, uh, just because they are the first entrant they have almost anecdotally speaking five four to five different products that achieve the same thing with different trade offs 
right? Let's say, let's talk about compute here. With AWS, if you want to run an application, being um, call, I'm calling it compute, you can either do it in by uh, buying an EC2 instance and hosting your application there, or you can spin up a Lambda and Lambda can you know quickly go do its thing and close it down, or you can do it and and Beanstalk abstraction, which takes care of your EC2 and pro abstracts away some things for you, or you can use a Fargate service, Fargate cluster, which runs your application in a containerized way. Right? I'm just there are at least three more in there that does the same thing, but each one has a different trade-off. And this this kind of this kind of empowers the customer to say that to basically to have more robust choices, right? So any decision like any CIO and CTO when they make a decision whether they want to go with AWS Azure or GCP, almost always no one regrets choosing AWS because the old adage of this here, right? No one got fired because they chose Oracle or IBM, right? It's the same thing, right? Just because of the fact that they've been here for a long time and they've been actually iterating away at these features on and on and on. Again, they have, have a very robust set of products that they have. I think that's the number one competitive advantage, if you ask me. The second is the community that is built around it. If you go Stack Overflow, if you look up the tags for AWS, Azure, and GCP, you would find about, I actually did this, you would find about 9,000 pages worth of posts for AWS, 5,000 pages posts for Azure, and 2,000 pages for GCP. And that's probably a good proxy for the amount of community and engagement you have, right? So on this commute, it actually, it, it might not sound like a lot, for people who are not in the industry, but it is a big deal for, for a software engineer when he's trying to try out a prototype and he knows that he can go ask away questions or refer to questions that have already been answered. And that's a huge deal. And that, this, this even just making the decision whether someone wants to use an AWS technology versus let's say some other solution, people tend to, okay, let's do this because it has higher support, right? So that's number two, I would, I would call it. And the other components are easily, I think, replicable and already replicated. For instance, if you take support, it used to be AWS support was kind of best in class. They have dedicated teams that, have, that are rightly incentivized to minimize the number of tickets that come to them that uh, they're actually incentivized to reduce cost for the customers. Like AWS customers actually tell you, you should do this, or AWS support, sorry, would actually tell you, you should do this to reduce cost. You would not hear that anywhere else, right? Like any business would be like, oh, do you want to use this extra feature, right? But Salespeople do that, but AWS supports incentives are actually set to reduce costs for you, solution architects. It used to be that AWS had one of the best support teams, but I think Azure GCP are up their game. I don't think it's a competitive, uh, competitive advantage uh, anymore. I just want to add that I think Azure and GCP are going to be as good of a businesses as AWS. I just know AWS very deeply because I work with hands-on. 
I, I just want to second what you said about community. So like for the various hack hackathon type projects that I've built that involve AWS, tutorials and Stack Overflow answers are my number one determinant. I do not want to spend a month of lead time to build something. I want to spend like three days. And in those three days, I want to build a proof of concept at least. So that is by far my biggest determinant for choosing what technology I use. And AWS is just a no-brainer from that front. So how can Azure and uh, Google Cloud possibly compete if AWS has such a head start, both in terms of what their offerings are, but more importantly, what their community is? I think they have already started chipping away. They just they just need to start follow the playbook. Microsoft is so good at replicating others' products. I mean, it's not a surprise. Like if Microsoft's core business is basically replicating other people's innovation, and they're very good at it. And they've done that beautifully, right? Azure has been in existence for ten years, and it's it's not no one hesitates to move to cloud anymore because Microsoft Microsoft's presence. So Microsoft actually made it made a mind share from customer's perspective that you know, moving to cloud is not a bad thing. Like we can reliably go because Microsoft is there, right? Microsoft has that kind of mind share. And I think it has almost like 10 years from now, I wouldn't be surprised if AWS and Azure are have equal market share and the GCP right behind them. I would not be surprised at all. And they just have to need to follow the playbook that AWS has set up. And I think both of them would would be just fine. Any, any other and new entrants that they are that are thinking to come into the space, that is not going to happen in my mind. That's it. The the entry period is closed, in my opinion. There are a couple of people eyeing for the spot, right? For OCI, Oracle OCI is eyeing for that spot. Like Oracle is probably has the cash flows to actually make it happen, but. I doubt it because just because of the fact that Oracle has lost its luster, people kind of view it as old school. I don't know. That's that's still to be decided. But the entry period into hyperscaling business is closed. Outside of China, these three are going to be the only players. I I did a calculation some time ago, but I don't have the numbers in front of me right now. The, the capex, the capital expenditures that. Amazon, Azure, and GCP have spent thus far would sink a country like Argentina with debts, uh, right? That's the yeah. amount of money they have to put into this to bring to the scale. And only cash-cushing businesses can afford to do that. No new player can... You and I cannot go sit in a garage today and say that we are going to compete with AWS. And no VC can support that kind of money either. Only businesses that are actually gushing cash out on it, they're like, we don't know what to do with this. And we are going to divert this cash towards this. And that's what happened with Amazon. Like with Amazon, that's not the case. Amazon was was actually unprofitable for so long because of the money that, that they had to spend on AWS. If not, I think retail, personally, I think retail would have started showing free cash flows in 2009. I'm not saying that's a good thing, right. but I think all the cash that was coming from retail was just straight up going to CapEx for AWS, right? And also CapEx for Amazon retail. But for Google, the, the amount of uh, free cash flow that they're generating from search 
it's just straight up going to CapEx of AWS, right? Sorry, CapEx for GCP. And same with Microsoft, but they've spent so much over the past 10 years. And only Azure and uh, AWS are making profits right now. Google is not making profits. I think it will take another couple of years. So spending that much money without taking profits for 10 years, not many countries can do, let alone country uh, companies. So I think these are the only players in my mind that are going to be in the space. So are Google, so what is Google's uh, play, Google and Microsoft's play to gain market share? Are they trying to migrate AWS customers or are they going after the market who hasn't even gone to the cloud yet? Yeah, they, they, this is white space. They are just going with white space exploration. So is AWS. No one is competing with each other right now. They're just, uh, I mean, they are competing at some level, but they're just looking at smoozing CIOs and CTOs and they're showing how much that they can save and how much they can improve their productivity. And they're just going after the old school, basically the non-tech part of S&P 500, if you think about it. The non-tech part of S&P 500 is not in AWS. Uh, it's not in uh, cloud right now. And they're just going out of the market share. Like when I say non-tech part, like imagine American Airlines, Southwest Airlines, Nordstrom, Exxon Mobil, Container Store, you know, all these people, they're just going out of the white space. I think the statistic is not even accurate at this point. I think the statistic is somewhere around 20% market penetration, but people can't even judge because no one knows how uh, how big that space is. But I'm I'm estimating about you know 75% penetration by another 10 years. And most people would come to the realization that having their applications run in cloud is much more beneficial for them than doing their own their own private clouds. There are multiple reasons for it. I can tell you, uh, I can tell you a simple example, like from uh, <clears throat> the customer benefit, right? It's in, from customer standpoint, it's very straightforward in their head. There, I don't want to name names, but there's a healthcare company, and it's one of the top. There's a healthcare hospital software solutions company that I worked for before, and this company has been onboarding customers, you know, left and right, right. Like when I say customers, hospitals, hospital solutions, they provide technical uh, technology for hospital solutions, and it's an old school company, and they have their own data centers, obviously, and their bottleneck is. Whenever they have to add a new customer, they need to build a new data center to house the extra data, right? Like either they have to add new CPUs because the clusters were not scaling. Like every like like at administrative level, the the jobs were failing because the clusters couldn't uh, sustain that much amount of data. So they need to add extra nodes but they don't have space in the same data center to add extra nodes. So they have to do extend their data centers or build new data centers to add new customers. So imagine the amount of bottleneck that it provides for operations. Like if you can, they could only, they have the capacity to onboard 20 customers a year, but they can only do 10. But once they move to a cloud provider like AWS or Azure, they don't, they're not, they don't have this bottleneck anymore, even though they, end up spending the same amount over the long term, right? If you amortize the initial spending and you do a net present value and whatnot, it probably will come to about the same money, but they, but where they win is the productivity gain. They don't have to wait two years 
to onboard 20 customers. They just have to do, they can do it as fast as they can. And in, in technological space, that's a huge advantage, right? No one is going for profitability straight up. Everyone is going for market share. And because in technology, in, in IT, that is the most important part. Like it's it, it lends itself to be a winner-take-all kind of space. And it's a huge benefit for customers. But that alone is a no-brainer for customers. And customers are going to, uh, in my opinion, any new software solution that existing non-tech S&P 500 companies are going to build, I think they're going to wisely choose to just build in cloud. I think most of them already decided to go that way. If you if you could sort of ground this conversation in numbers, because I think you said we have currently 20% market penetration between all the cloud providers. Eventually, maybe in five to 10 years, we have 75% market penetration. What does that mean in terms of dollars? Sure, I'll go over those numbers. So if we can do this calculation either way. We can either uh, go from the global GDP and backtrack to what would be on the cloud TAM, or we can look at the current businesses and apply a Kager on top of it and see where they are. We can do both. Let's go from the global GDP route, right? Right now in 2021, 2020, the global GDP is 113 trillion. And we apply a 6% projected Kager to this global GDP, assuming 2% inflation, 3% productivity gains, you would end up with 180 trillion dollars uh, worth of global GDP. That's every, and with part of this 180 trillion dollars, if you assume that any, take any industry, and if you assume that 5% of the industries spent are going to come from IT maintenance, and that very well is the case, like if you go look at statistics, even agriculture and industrials are spending 5% of uh, they spend on IT at this point, and it's only going to grow on automation, right? Like you can think of even the smallest things like irrigation, automating the irrigation part, that's an IT spend, right? If any any sort of automation is going to come from IT spend, if you assume 5% of that, that's going to be $9 trillion, right? So by 2030, $9 trillion would, of global GDP is going to be on IT spend tech, to be precise. And of the $9 trillion, so now we are talking about automation and software and IT companies and hardware companies, right? This is the, this is the industry space that we are on right now. General heuristic, if you take, usually take any companies, the general, like if you look at their expenses, about 80% would be their employee base. 20% probably is their backend infrastructure. That's, uh, it's a conservative heuristic that I would like to take. It probably is more. If you ask him 20%, of uh, nine trillion, that is one point eight trillion dollars, and then one point eight trillion dollars is the is the money the world is spending on IT infrastructure, and now this time is it includes private clouds and public clouds, hyperscalers, and you know people who decide to have their own clouds. And if you assume by twenty thirty, seventy five percent of the people are in public clouds, and twenty five choose to still choose to have their own clouds. With that penetration, you are looking at 1.3 trillion. And if you assume, let's say that I'm wrong and there is one more new entrant in the space and the top five players are only taking up 75% of the 1.3 trillion that I'm talking about. So that's $1 trillion. So the top five players, including the two from China, are 
in cumulation are making $1 trillion in revenue, right? And if you look at the percentage right now, it's about 50% AWS right now in 2021. 50% AWS, 30% Azure, about 10, 10, 5, 3% the remaining, right? But obviously the smaller places are going much faster than AWS and Azure. And if you ask here, AWS, is, AWS loses market share and they are 30% by 2030, that would bring the revenues to $300 billion by 2030. And $300 billion, if you put a free cash flow margin on top of that, that would be $60 billion. To give some context, all of Amazon makes $30 billion in free cash flow in 2020. So AWS alone would make twice that amount of free cash flow by 2030, if my assumptions are right. And if you go back, so, so this is uh, reverse engineering from the global tab, right? But if you see how feasible it is from the current revenue numbers, and on an annualized basis, AWS is making $55 billion uh, in revenue in the past 12 months. And so $55 billion to $300 uh, billion revenues. So that comes to somewhere about 21% CAGR, if I'm not mistaken. Someone can correct me, but it's 21% CAGR. AWS right now is growing at about 30 one percent i think last quarter was 35 percent but they're growing at about 30 percent giggle right now so even if you assume the first five years are going to be you know from somewhere around 30 percent to trading to 15 percent they'll easily make 21 percent and they would get there and i think they will get there same with azure if you assume 30 percent I mean, if you assume, let, let's assume that Azure is 25%, they would be going a little more faster, but I think they'll get there, in my opinion. Do you think, though, that the clouds of uh, 2035 will resemble the cloud that we have today? Or could there be something which completely changes That's, orders of magnitude? That, that is something that uh, I think everyone needs to keep an eye on. Uh, by 2030, I don't think anyone fundam anything fundamentally would change given the incentives of people who are involved. No one wants the underlying infrastructure infrastructure to change if they already spend so much money on it, right? Every single player wants the same infrastructure. They People change, adapt changes only if they see clear incentives with the newer change, right? That's why people who are, have their applications in their private data centers are moving to AWS because they're seeing a clear incentive to move. Right now, there's nothing in the horizon, in my opinion, that can be an upstart, but there will be something for sure in the next 15 years or so. I don't know what that's going to be. Anyone who is investing in technology has to keep an eye on these things for sure. One advantage that you have is that new thing might very well be coming from these three players. I was just saying that on your note about hyperscaling and Amazon growing at 30%, I'm sure Azure, they're all growing at a similar rate. What is the biggest constraint to their growth? I was just reading an article recently that Amazon is having trouble finding the requisite talent to maintain this growth. Do you think that is the biggest constraint or do you think there's some other big constraint? I think talent is certainly a problem. They, the first five years of growth, I think they were able to achieve with much less headcount. 
But right now, the industry is employing more than 150,000 people, the top three players alone, more than 150,000 engineers, uh, not engineers, 150,000 people, right? This includes sales. This includes several people who are in the data centers. I think they have figured out a way to uh, attract new talent. I think the trouble is going to be keeping the quality as they grow into the scale. One of the biggest risks, in my opinion, for hyperscalers is losing trust. The biggest risk. That's what happened to take Oracle, right? A customer started losing trust in Oracle once they realized that Oracle is not scaling. It's not performing to the level that they thought that Oracle promised it. Almost Oracle became synonymous with, you know, sluggishness, slow UI, right? So but so that's one of the biggest things. So they have to keep on innovating and pushing the boundaries to sustain this growth, else something else is going to be an upstart. That's number one. And security is a second biggest risk. If customer starts seeing, hearing news from everywhere that, oh, there's a data breach here, and apparently it's from Azure or from its GCP, they start having this mind share of unreliability and it will be very hard to sell to new customers. That's going to be the second biggest uh, hurdle. But if they were able to maintain these two, basically when I say these two, I mean reinventing themselves, number one, basically the day one culture that Bezos talks about, and the second one being 100% attention to security, I think they'll be fine. Sure. You know, I the other thing about AWS that I wanted to touch on, I know previously you mentioned so the recession-proofness of the business. Can you speak a little bit about that? Sure. Any investments that as an investor you make, one of the first things that you have to look at is downside production. Correct. One of the reasons that Costco sells at a premium to the profits that they're making is because people know that even in a recession, people are going to go buy in Costco because they want to save money. Whereas you can't say that to a business like Etsy. When, when people are losing jobs, they're not going to go buy handcrafted items that are being shipped to their homes. Um, Costco would probably see 5% loss in revenues if we get a um, scenario of 2008 again. Etsy would probably see 50% loss in revenues, right? It's not to say that Etsy is a bad business, but Costco is a better business. I think the same applies to the cloud industry, if if companies are struggling to make revenues, the first thing as a CFO would look at their line items and say that, hey, we have to go lean. We should probably you know, let go of some people or we should let you know, stop spending on new ads. We should stop spending on expansion. Those are the places that they will cut their money first the last place that they would cut their money on is to strip their website away. They need their website up and running, no matter what the business is. Say you are a restaurant, a Thai restaurant that uh, that is going through this recessionary period, you would, you know, let go of people first, you would do anything, but the last thing that you would do is stop paying for your website, whoever is hosting your website. Right. And ultimately, 
all of this trickles down to being managed by hyperscalers and ultimately it goes to them. So they are almost like utility in some sense. You would not cut your water supply. Water will be the last, water bill will be the last place that you would stop paying. Right. So it's almost like uh, utility in, the, in some sense. And I think hyperscalers would cruise through any recessionary period. And also one other thing uh, to note is they know that they are in this power position and they don't abuse it. They usually give leeways to the customer because they know that the customers need their help. They usually, just like, you know, a landlord gives a moratorium doing COVID-19, hyperscalers say that, hey, it's okay. You don't have to pay us for, you know, so and so if you're struggling, but then, you know, you have to pay us when things are getting better. And they would, they all, they always provide because scenarios like that, because at the uh, end of the day, the customer's success is hyperscaler success. They want every single one of their customers to succeed phenomenally. Right. Do you do you think uh, Amazon does that? I know you mentioned this earlier, which is they really want to save the customer money. And even in the case of a recessionary period, they don't take advantage of them. Do you think that is because of antitrust fears? They're worried they're going to get broken up. And so they don't want to do, no. you know, they don't do price gouging of anything. No, I genuinely think that's because it's in the best interest of them. They don't, you don't want your best customers dying. Right. Ask tobacco industry. Right. You want your best customers living. And they, I think they would, they should, if you know, any rational entity would choose to do this because it's only in their interest. So one thing that you've mentioned a few times was the potential upstarts. So I wanted to get your opinion on something like, say, Heroku, which just to give context, it's kind of, it offers some similar things to Amazon, but it's a much, uh, lower learning curve, but it's also much, much less powerful. So where do you think things like Heroku fit into this whole ecosystem? Heroku probably has been in existence as long as AWS was. Correct me if I'm wrong, right? Probably about 10 years now. I think they have chosen their niche and I think they have decided to play that niche. I don't I don't think they want to play the hyperscaling space. I think they want to stick to these are the you know bare metal solutions that we are providing and we are the leader in the space. And if you want to host your Cassandra instance and manage it with your own DevOps team, come and use our solution to host it. You don't have to go build your data centers, but you can have your own DevOps team to maintain your solutions. Right, and that's a niche. That's a niche that there are some people who prefer doing that. There are some entities that uh, have specific use case to maintain their own applications, and they are very happy with using private private clouds or managed commodity commodity type public clouds like Heroku. I think everyone is uh, trying to find the niche and be the biggest player there. I don't think if Heroku were to compete, they would have already competed in the space. I don't think they have. They might, like, since it's a white space, there is no one is competing with each other. But uh, once the industry gets into maturity, I think it'll be a lot interesting to see uh, how each player is deciding to partner with each other. So you mentioned, like, by 2035, we see these big five players. 
Do you think it's possible that another thing which could happen is we have the big five and then we have a huge chunk of market share that's taken by just like these small niche islands? Right. I think so. I think private cloud is private cloud is going to have a lot more players just because of the fact that it's a commodity industry, right? Like HPE is going to have its share. Dell is going to have its share. VMware is going to have its share. Toshiba, build servers for enterprises is going to have its share. I think there's there are there are a lot more players at that private cloud niche, and even Amazon has Outpost, AWS Outpost, that it launched a year and a half, a couple of years ago. Basically, rolls their servers in into your data centers and runs AWS application on top of it. So I think it's a dogfight in that space. It's not in public cloud, in my opinion. I think in one of your threads, I think you put it really nicely, which is. Amazon has sort of has this distribution power that traps this product. And so if somebody's already in the AWS ecosystem, they're more likely to use a Redshift compared to Snowflake, even though Redshift isn't really as great of a product as Snowflake. And that ends up being like a moat. So can you speak a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. The one analogy that I keep referring back to is uh, there is a reason Chrome is the most used browser in Android and Safari is the most used browser in iOS. That is primarily because distribution power. It's not that Chrome is better than Safari or Safari is better than Chrome. They're good, but most people prefer to use whatever that's coming default to them. It's not applicable only to general public, but to software engineers too. I'm a software engineer and I'm building solutions and I build solutions using tools by AWS and you know, a new project comes into my table and it let's say that it involves graphical database. I need you know a database that provides graphical relationships. And the first thing I'm going to be doing, this is literally going to be my workflow. I would go to Google, I would, I would search AWS graph database. I'm not going to search best graph database. There's a difference. Right, I'm going to search AWS Graph Database and I'm going to go click on the documentation and read it. Probably I'll do a sanity check of Neptune, AWS Graph Databases, Neptune DB. Probably I'll do a, a sanity check of Neptune versus whatever that's out there. And probably you read one post that says that Neptune is good enough. And I'm just like, that's good enough for me. And there's a trust that's built in this ecosystem. And software engineers are like, like you said, they want to get the job done as fast as possible with good enough quality. The key is good enough, good enough here, right? So, and then people tend to iterate and improve their products. So the incentive, I wouldn't say incentive, but uh, the human nature is to stick with the devil that they know. And and because of that, most people are going to choose whatever that's that's included as part of their toolkit. And this is not to say that Snowflake is a bad business. Snowflake, if you ask any person who used Snowflake, they're going to give glowing reviews uh, for that. They're, they're going to say that shift is slow. They're going to say it doesn't scale well. Snowflake decouples compute and uh, data storage. It scales beautifully. It's much faster. It provides a lot more integration, much better than any other solutions out there. It's all true. It's probably is the best thing ever sliced bread. But the native integration and the distribution that the native, uh, the 
tools that come directly through AWS are going to always win, in my opinion. And it's one of the boon, or I would say pain, of software industry is uh, it's so easy to copy features. Right, it's there is no patent patent that that is protecting Snowflake's any of Snowflake's architecture. So, I I I bet that Redshift team is already working on. They already released Redshift Spectrum that has decoupled compute and data storage, and they they probably would be lagging a year behind Snowflake, maybe forever. But they would keep on improving, and for most developers, it's good enough. Right, mm -hmm. and also the integration parts. Uh, integration is the key to all of it. Imagine you are in WhatsApp in your phone, and you want to share a link that you read in Chrome to someone through WhatsApp. Imagine not having the share and send button from Chrome. That is the integration, direct integration, right? That is a pain, like a customer pain. And those things happen all the time in AWS. If the third-party tool that is being sold in market, uh, Marketplace, most of those, they don't have one-click integration with native AWS tools, right? Snowflake probably doesn't have one. It probably does, but, you know, any like a normal, a normal third-party um, solution wouldn't have one-click one integration with the uh, Kinesis to put data into it, but Redshift does. Mm -hmm. You don't even like the the whole no code movement. It's it's only possible because of well defined integrations. If those integrations are not provided for you uh, by default, then there is no no code. You have to code those integrations yourself. So the no code is basically strengthening the business model that all these hyperscalers are already having. So distribution trumps quality, in my opinion. Right. Great. Great. You know, this has been amazing. I think I've honestly learned a lot about AWS. I It's one of my sort of new favorite things to learn about. So before we wrap up, I, I want to touch a little bit about on your background and how you got into financial investing. I know you come from an engineering background. You know, other engineers that are listening out there who have for their whole life really just coded or stuck to hardware or whatnot. And now they're thinking, well, what's what's the, the technology itself and what's the business? How would you sort of advise them to approach that aspect of technology? I started to learn about finance as a hobby. I started researching into what makes a business durable, hence one of my, uh, hence my Twitter handle. And going through these, going through this research, the one thing popped again and again in all this was a, a good business makes all the all the stakeholders not the shareholders all the stakeholders happy and content right that's one of the key things and when i learned this the first thing that popped in my head is wait the industry that i am working in it does that right like it, if you look at the customers are happy because they get to spend less and 
are much more productive. The shareholders are happy because this is one of those businesses that are actually churning profits left and right. And the employees are happy because these DevOps people, the people who work in AWS, they brought, they if not for that, they probably would be ironing, you know, all these repeat automations that has to be done again and again in a different company. Now they get to use all that to create solutions that actually empowers the whole world, right? It it it, it kind of touches on, it makes all these stakeholders happy, and. This is the framework that I look any look at any business. Like for people who are from technological background, they see a lot of new things that that excites them, right? Like electric cars. Like you see Tesla, Tesla's doing phenomenally, phenomenally with their car manufacturing, with their self driving, and people are in love with the car. But you have to ask yourself all these questions to how durable the company is how profitable the company is and you have to build these mental frameworks by um, basically you don't have to do anything new just listen to you know Warren Buffett Peter Lynch Charlie Munger Darcy uh, and all these people and basically have these mental frameworks in your head to judge companies uh, based on their qualities and once you judge companies based on their qualities you can pretty much come to an understanding of okay would this company it boils down to like a couple of questions would this company last 30 years like what would it take this company to last 30 years what if this company if you say that this company will last 30 years would there be other companies coming in to take the profit share if that's the case then why would customers use choose this company over the other right so it's a once you start asking the core question, you can dig again, in a, again and again and again to find why there is the durability to this company, right? I think building the, all these mental models in your head is probably the number one starting place. And then you can start looking into the financial statements just like and look at their numbers and see how much is their growth trajectory, how much are they growing revenues, their profits and what market share they're having, what is the unit economics. So you can look at all those things at the secondary level, uh, but at the primary level, you should have a good understanding of what makes a, a business a good business. Sure. And I, you know, I, I just add to that, I think beyond even beyond investing, it's good to study these things as a person in tech, just because you're probably leaving jobs every few years. And as you determine, you know, sort of what company you're heading into, it's probably good to know, like, the financial health of this company and sort of the market they're in and the the sort of the bigger point of view and the bigger picture of the of the business and the industry. So on that note, Durable Investments, great. Thank you so much for joining us. I will we will include sort of your Twitter handle and other places that people can find your content in, in the show notes. Otherwise, yeah, thank you so much. This has been really informational and educational. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate uh, you guys having me. That's our episode for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to subscribe to us and rate us on Apple Podcasts. We would really appreciate the support. You can also follow me on Twitter at FZ from Cupertino and Vasanth at Next Vasanth. See you guys next week.